you have your Bible, join me in Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now we pause for just a second, remembering where we are at at this moment. As we come to this place here in verse 18, let us go back quickly to last week into the earlier verses. When we look at where Paul is at there, beginning in verse 14, Paul said, I am a debtor. So he started off with that understanding of I am a debtor. I owe a debt to anyone who does not know Jesus Christ because I have had the privilege of coming into a saving knowledge of Christ and therefore I have a debt. It is an obligation that I have. I am a debtor. Then he says down in verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel. Paul said, I owe this and therefore I am always ready to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because the truth of the saving grace of Christ is so powerful. It is appropriate at any time and any occasion. And then he says there in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And as Paul declares, I am a debtor, I am ready and I am not ashamed. Then he comes into verse 18 and he declares, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth, the truth that he recognized he had a debt about, the truth he recognized he was ready with, and the truth he was not ashamed of. They hold that truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. As we look at our responsibility from Paul's perspective, Paul says that I have this debt, therefore I am ready and I am not ashamed. And when he proclaims that, it's a challenge to each and every one of us to be ever ready with the gospel. But one of the things that comes to question of those who do not believe in Scripture the way that you and I would when they come to the idea of God and the thought about God, they will often ask a question, something to the extent of, would a loving God condemn someone to hell that has never heard the gospel? Now, it is hard enough in our culture in which they have heard the gospel. This past week, there was a big thing out in the news in the sports world uh, about a professional football player who is a well-known quarterback, and he stated that he grew up in a church that talked about God, that talked about hell, and he didn't believe that there could be a God who is loving and who would send people to hell. To make a statement like that is to take the Bible and to disregard all of it. So either 
The Bible is true and there is a God and therefore there is a hell. Or the Bible is not true and there's not a God. And so he has come to a place, as he declared, to find his own place of spirituality. That's all fine and good as long as there's no God. But if there is a God, then there's a problem with that. Because God declared that there is hell and that there is a wrath that is revealed. Going back into verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. To make the assumption that because God loves that he does not have wrath is therefore an illogical conclusion. Is there anyone who has ever walked on this earth who had love and yet did not have wrath also? To make an assumption at that level is to define God from an understanding that is never, never implied in Scripture. It's never even implied in his creation. But yet we make that assumption. You see, God's love does not nullify his wrath. The two do not have to be opposed. They are both true. They work together, but both of them exist. In my house, there is love. But in my house, there is wrath. And both can exist. And they are not exclusive. And one is a result of the other. Because there is love, there is wrath. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Whom a father loveth, he chasteneth. And it only makes sense that I would look at someone. If you've ever seen a child that has no wrath in their life, they have never been disciplined, make no mistake, that parent does not love them properly. And society knows it, whether they want to admit it or not. To make the assumption that in order for God to be loving, he cannot have wrath, does not fit in any area of nature. We don't see it. But yet people will come to that conclusion. Why? Well, I think we see it even unfold here a little bit more in this. But the wrath of God is a powerful tool that is to be used in the heart of man. We live in a generation, in a society, in a culture that emphasizes the love of God. And I believe for good reason. However, to take away and never emphasize the wrath of God is an injustice to who He is. You see, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is not that the fear of God is the end of wisdom. It is not that the fear of God is the end of my relationship. The fear of God is that beginning point and it puts things into a proper perspective. It begins to help me understand that I have to come to Him for His definition. If I don't fear God, therefore I can come to my own conclusion and my own definition. And that's exactly what the world has tried to do today. But when I come to God with an understanding that He's the one who defines and a fear that if I don't follow His definition, I've got a problem, that puts everything now into perspective. So I come with an understanding that there is the holiness of God. It does exist. God's primary attribute would be hard to define, but you would have to argue if there were such a thing that holiness would have to be in the consideration of His primary attribute. It is the only characteristic of God that is defined as thrice 
in Scripture. He is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. So there is an emphasis placed on this perfect purity, this separated, set apart, without sin, holiness of God. His very being, His very action defines holiness. And therefore, to say that God is not holy and God does not have a right to judge, every person believes in a system in which they believe judgment is necessary when there is a transgression to an extent. If a person does not believe in that, we call them a narcissist. We call them a serial killer. We put them in jail and we get them away from people. When someone does something wrong enough, all of society comes back to condemn that action. And therefore, because of that condemnation, they're recognizing that there is a point at which, regardless of their religious background, that there is a point in which there is a transgression of the law that has to be judged. So to then look at God and say that God doesn't have a right to define when the law is transgressed and what his judgment will be of that, a completely illogical conclusion, but complete blasphemy as to who God is. Complete lack of understanding of deity. So Paul says, look, church at Rome, to all of you who have backgrounds associated with all of these gods, make sure you understand that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel saves and changes but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. I think in some ways the last part of that phrase even draws back to Christ going into the temple and casting out the money changers. When you have the truth and you hold the truth in unrighteousness, I believe there is a special wrath of God for that. And it is why as a pastor, and I've had this conversation with Pastor Jared, there are things that I know to be true according to Scripture, and I have no problem standing on those things. There are things I believe to be true according to Scripture, but I will never say, thus saith the Lord about something I believe to be true, but I don't know to be true. Because I stand before God knowing that I hold His truth, and I don't want to hold it in unrighteousness. And I want to be very careful about that. And I want to protect that. And I want to guard that. And I believe that there are plenty of what we would call good pastors who will stand accountable before God because they held the truth of God in unrighteousness. Their pride got in the way and their pride led them to preach something that was not true to Scripture. We come to the Word of God and we recognize God is holy. Look in verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. You see, when we begin to look at this, we now see the wrath of God come against the love of God. The gospel is available to all kinds, but there is a wrath for those who hold the truth and unrighteousness. And when we put these two together, we recognize now that God's love does not nullify his wrath. In fact, God's love provides Jesus Christ. His wrath would not spare him. So when you and I look at a world around us, and when others try to step forward and say, well, God would never send someone to hell, not a loving God, 
But to say that that loving God would allow Christ to be crucified, to be beaten, to be torn, he would not spare Christ, but you expect that he would spare you? Well, the only reason he will spare any of us is because of Christ. And when we come in Christ, we see that it is the love of God that gave Christ, that helps us to have that home of heaven, that helps make it manifest in us. So we then come before God, not in our own merits, but in Christ. And so the world would say, well, if I come in Christ, then if I don't know about Christ, then certainly I cannot be condemned for what I don't know. We had a friend, and Carol will know exactly who I'm talking about. He used to always say, you're going down the road, you're speeding. You're doing 60 miles an hour. Police officer pulls you over. And the police officer says to you, hey, did you know you were speeding? And you go, no, I didn't know what the speed limit was. He goes, well, you were speeding. Press hard three copies. Because you've got to get all the way through. The, and they may do it digital now. It's been a while. Uh, and he said, press hard three copies. And he goes, well, but sir, I, I didn't know what the speed limit was. How can you hold me accountable for breaking the law? Press hard three copies. In other words, when it comes right down to it, ignorance is no excuse of the law. So for us to say, would God spare someone who has never heard the gospel is two illogical conclusions. One, it is to say that God does not have a right to judge someone because of their sin. Well, that's absolutely not true. He has that right. He defines it. Ignorance is no excuse of the law. But it's also to declare that there was no opportunity for that individual to come to Christ. According to this passage, when you come back to verse 19, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them that every person has in their conscience an aspect of their conscience that testifies to the fact that there is a God. In creation, we were made in the image of God. Therefore, it is in our very image, our very nature, to know that there is a God. It's why it really doesn't matter where you go in the world. If you go to any part of the world that is an uneducated part of the world, there will be some belief system and some type of God, period. You go to an old Mayan temple, and they will be sure that they had the truth, but it is because they believed in some type of a God. You go into the most remote village in the furthest away place in the Amazon, and there is some belief system of some type of spirit, supernatural being, something bigger than them. It's because inside our conscience bears witness that there is a God, and it is in us. And in this passage is a great, simple truth that's not so hidden, but we forget. God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. I believe that when Scripture says, and Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, that every person who has ever walked on this earth has had the Holy Spirit of God draw them toward God. Now, certainly not everyone responds, but I believe that everyone has had that drawing. And if you continue on, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
our conscience, tes conscience testifies there is a God, but nature declares there is a God. Have you ever wondered why is the universe so big? It didn't have to be. Why is it that the more we look and the bigger technology gets and the more advanced and the further we can see, it just keeps going, it just keeps going, it just keeps going? Because the vastness of it all proves that there's got to be somebody a lot bigger than me that made all this. And so even the heathen is condemned by nature. He looks up and he sees in the sky so much more than he is. So every individual has in their conscience, because they're made in the image of God, something that says, there's something more than me. Every individual has had the Holy Spirit draw them and pull at them. And every individual looks around them and sees this world. And so then comes along Satan's plan to undermine the very facts that are in all of us. So I'm drawn to the fact by my conscience and by nature that there has to be something. There has to be something bigger than me that made this. And so Satan devises a plan. He comes up with an idea to give an answer as to where it all came from so that it couldn't be God. Because if he can undermine God and he can get people to believe in something else, then certainly the very nature that God made to condemn man, to help them see their need for a Savior, no longer has that effect because they've been convinced of something else. That's why I say if you go anywhere in the world, especially an uneducated place in the world, because if you go to some of the most educated places in the world, what has happened is not that they don't see. What has happened is not that they have not heard of God. What has happened is they have been deceived to believe in something other than God. And so they have taken that belief that they had and they have been convinced otherwise. Isn't it interesting that almost anyone who is a quote-unquote atheist became one? Because at some point they believed there was a God because it was in them. It's part of who they are. The world declares it. At two points in history, everyone knew who God was. When you look down in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. At creation, at the flood, everyone on earth knew God. Not only did everyone know God, everyone had seen the power of God. Everyone had had a personal encounter with God. There was a relationship, a knowledge, a fellowship from every single person. It begins to devolve quickly. It begins to fall away. But there were these two points. So we asked the question, how do you go from a place in which everyone knows of God to a place in which people no longer believe in God? Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened we see a process that begins to unfold here. So if we ask the question, how does a generation separate from God? How does a country like America that was founded on the very fact that we need religious freedom, we need to be able to worship God the way that we deem right, according to the Bible, how does that country turn into the country that we have today? That says we need to get God out of everything. Well, the way it happens is simple. It begins by glorifying Him not. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Now look, you've got to understand this is our fault. 
Okay, this is Bible believers' faults. This is not the ones who don't know God's fault. This is our fault. When we, as Bible believers, stop glorifying God, it is the first step towards a generation walking away from God. I have shared this before, but I genuinely believe this. There's a lot out there in our circles, just in Bible-believing circles, about why is it that so many young people are walking away from God? And there's all of these theories out there, and there are books written on it, about what we need to preach and what we need to teach and how we need to convince our young people that there is a God so that they don't walk away from God when they're older. And apologetics is the big thing right now in the world, that we need to be teaching everyone apologetics and how to defend their faith and how everything exists and answers in Genesis and all that comes together. And it teaches us so that we have a good understanding so that our next generation doesn't walk away from God. I do believe that that is important. But I don't think that's the key. Because Jesus Christ himself said, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. When we love God in such a way that we want his glory and we are glorifying God and we are lifting God up and God is real in our homes, it gets a hold of our kids' lives and it makes a difference. I believe apologetics can help. I absolutely do. But if we have time, we'll, we'll come and I'll, I'll prove to you why I don't think it's the end-all be-all. At the end of the day, the first step, according to Romans, in which we walk away from God is when those who know God stop glorifying God. It is politically incorrect to give glory to God these days. And unfortunately, it's almost politically incorrect in churches to give glory to God these days. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. We have to recognize that this is not a matter of preference. This is not a matter of, I'm not comfortable in that way. This is a matter of, this is the first step to a generation walking away from God. And I'm not going to let it happen on my watch. They glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful Gratitude is the guardian of the soul. How many things in your life bring stress in your life because you are simply not grateful that God allowed them in your life? We look at things and we look at them as stressors and God's looking at them as building blocks. And we're just ungrateful. Has there ever been a society more ungrateful than we are today? We have so much. And we just want more. We stop glorifying God. We become ungrateful. Then we go to vain in their imaginations. The wording here is interesting. It has the idea of becoming somewhat idle and to stop thinking about things that are important and beginning to think about things that are unimportant. So becoming vain in our imagination so that the things that we should be thinking about in God and focusing and thinking about and dwelling on and looking toward, we now begin to just think about and dwell on things that are not important. Does that not sound like America? Does that not sound like social media? I mean, come on, just sorry. That, that was Wednesday nights. Continue on. And their foolish heart was darkened. And the light goes out. You're the light of the world. But you stop glorifying me. And then you become ungrateful. 
Then you start thinking on the wrong things. And now it's gone. And we go from the light to the darkness. And the truth is, it's an easy drift. You don't see in here. They went from light to darkness because of the wickedness of their hearts, because of all of the sins, because of all of the, the things that they did. No, they just stopped worshiping God. They just stopped being thankful. They just started thinking about the wrong things, things that weren't important. And next thing you know, their hearts are darkened. And then you continue on. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. It is such a quick trip. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts, into creeping things. After our vain imaginations, things get dark and we fall into idolatry. We begin to make everything else our God. The things of this world become more important than the things of the next. And as we go through, all of a sudden, jobs become our idols. All of a sudden, family can become an idol. Children can. Before you know it, a game does. And we lift up and we have all of this idolatry in our hearts. God is no longer important. And we make insignificant significant. Unfortunately, religion has not helped this. One author said, religion has done more harm to the cause of Christ than any other element in society. It has lifted up all of the wrong things and taken the emphasis off of God. But Paul said, look, I, I know, I, I know this is the tendency. And then we're going to look at next week kind of the fruit of that tendency. But in the midst of it, he says, but please understand before you get there, if you will simply take the gospel and recognize that you have a debt to get the gospel out because that's where you're going. And you will be ready to get the gospel out because that's where you're going. And you will be unashamed of the gospel because that's where you're going. And would say, look, I, I don't want us to end up there. Turn over, if you will, Luke. Luke chapter 15. Excuse me, Luke 16. Luke 16. In Luke 16, we have the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm verse 25 now. But Abram said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art in torment. He said, there's a great gulf between us, verse 27. Then he said, the rich man, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I read that passage to help us understand. It is not a miracle of someone raising from the dead that will convince anyone. 
it is not that we need anything miraculous to convince people of Jesus Christ. What we need are the scriptures, Moses and the prophets. When we got people. Life recognizing our debt and we are ready and we are living right and we come to a world that already has in their conscience a knowledge of God, that already sees a world that declares the glory of God. And we come with the Word of God and we allow the Word of God to work in their hearts and to penetrate their hearts. Lives can be changed whether it is Jew or Gentile. But we have the responsibility to carry the gospel. And if we stop glorifying, and if we become unthankful, and we start thinking and focusing on the wrong things, and we fall into idolatry, then what hope does the world have? Because it's our responsibility. It's our debt. I pray that we recognize the responsibility we carry, and that we get serious about the fact that the world needs the gospel. They need the gospel. So you say, would, would a loving God really condemn someone who has never heard to hell? Yes. Yes. So we have the truth. So it's our responsibility to get it to them. How are we doing at that? It's easy to think about the person in the most remote village in the world. But the world has come to us. The, the world is in Atlanta. The world has overtaken America in the sense of now there are people all around us who, declaring themselves wise, have become fools. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation.